This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being part of the show. As we begin our exploration here, this is episode number 15 coming up, episode 15, and uh, we're starting off taking a look at what appears to be evidence that God hates non-Judeo-Christian countries. But uh, I think that uh, you will very quickly see that that is not the case, so I'm issuing an urgent caveat. Uh, If you are going to be turning off the show now, please be assured that I will be demonstrating the uh, fact that that is an untrue statement. However, uh, in the early phases of the conversation, it sure is going to look as if that is exactly what's going on. What am I talking about? Well, uh, take, for example... The fact that uh, on December the 23rd, 2003, there was an earthquake in Ban, a town in Iran. And uh, about 23,000, probably more, but the Iranian officials saying about 23,000 people died in this earthquake. Now, um, there was an earthquake, uh, it is true, three days later in Paso Robles, California, on the central California coast, and uh, nobody really died. There were a few people in hospital. They managed to link about three deaths to the Paso Robles earthquake. But, uh, I mean, there's no comparison, no comparison at all. Uh, but more than that, if I was to list for you the 20 biggest calamities of the 20th century, the 20 20 biggest disasters. I'm not speaking about war, but I'm speaking only about things like earthquakes, uh, volcanic eruptions, forest fires, and floods, tsunamis and floods. And uh, I would list the 20 biggest ones of the 20th century. 17 of them would be in non-Christian countries. That's right, 17 out of 20. That's a lot. And doesn't that make it look, indeed, as if God is singling out non-Christian countries to afflict with major natural disasters? That's what it looks like, doesn't it? Until you realize that I've pulled a little statistical flim-flam on you as uh, news media are so fond of doing, as politicians are so fond of doing. Well, guess what? Rabbis can do it just as well. What is it? What's the flim-flam? It's very simple. When I said the 20 biggest natural disasters of the 20th century, these are not disasters measured by objective measurements like... uh, you know, the height of the wave of the tsunami or, uh, or what kind of hurricane it was or how, you know, what was the Richter scale number of the earthquake. No, measured by deaths. 
And if you measure by deaths, then the 20 most disastrous natural calamities of the 20th century, of those 20, 17 took place in non-Christian countries. However, if we run a different test now, and we say, what were the 20 biggest natural calamities of the 20th century measured by objective standards like Richter scale for earthquakes or storm intensity for hurricane-induced floods. Uh, now it becomes obvious that uh, God is an equal opportunity disruptor, that uh, the natural disasters are spread uniformly and, and somewhat uh, reliably around the entire world. So what is the difference? The difference, coming back to the, the two earthquakes that occurred three days apart, on December the 23rd in Bam, Iran, and on December 26th in Paso Robles, California, turns out that they were almost identical earthquakes. Uh, Paso Robles had a 6.5, uh, Iran had a 6.6, .6, and even on the logarithmic scale used on the Richter system, uh, that is not a significant difference. There's a significant difference between a, a 3.5 and a 6.5, obviously. But uh, for all intents and purposes, the ground shaking uh, of a 6.5 and a 6.6 .6 is identical. And, um, and so now we see that the earthquakes occurred both in Judeo-Christian America and in Muslim Iran. The difference was not the size of the earthquake. The difference was only how many people died. And what is that attributable to? Well, number one, number one, very simply, wealth. Judeo-Christian cultures have created wealth. And what that means is that uh, buildings are built to, uh, to code and to standards, and they're strong buildings, and there's modern transportation that can get people to medical facilities, and there's advanced medical equipment, and there's uh, emergency staff. But uh, the main thing is that hundreds and hundreds of thousands of buildings collapsed in Bam, Iran at the end of 2003. Uh, but some pieces, some masonry fell off buildings in Paso Robles. Same size earthquake, but uh, no buildings were brought tumbling down. The difference is partially the wealth that enables proper buildings to be constructed in the United States and uh, not proper buildings in, um, in Iran. But there's more to it as well. And that is there are cultural differences, my friends, and that is that uh, life is really important within a Judeo-Christian culture. And so we do everything possible to make people safe. However, in an Islamic culture, there's a fatalistic outlook. What happens, happens. And uh, you will remember that every few years, hundreds and hundreds of people are trampled to death in Saudi Arabia during a religious hajj. Right? That doesn't happen very often in Western countries. Part of the reason is that there is such shock and concern 
when that does happen, that they take steps to make sure it never happens again. But uh, the cultural differences are enormous. Think about this. You know, year after year, it happens again and again and again, usually in, in poor places like Bangladesh. But there are other places in Europe um, where, uh, where tidal waves, where uh, tsunamis take place, and thousands of people are washed away. Thousands of people are drowned. Thousands. Now, we're talking about places, if you don't mind, that don't even put sirens up on poles. These are places that get tsunamis regularly, and they don't even put up World War II technology, right? By the way, you get a lot of notice about an impending tsunami, even the horrible one in Asia. People knew about it enough time beforehand to uh, ring sirens and get people onto higher ground. Did they do it? No. Do they have sirens? Absolutely not. Do they have them now? Still not! Because it's just not that important. But um, in the 1950s, there was a flood in Holland, and uh, a number of Dutch people uh, drowned. Not hundreds, but tens drowned. Uh, the, 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 the water came washing, uh, the, the North Sea came washing over the, one of the dikes and, um, and drowned some Dutchmen. That was the last time a Dutchman drowned because of the failure of a dike. Immediately, those Dutchmen pooled their money and in the form of uh, government bonds, and they went ahead and built the world's biggest land reclamation project in all of history, the Zuiderzee with massive, massive gates and walls and dikes and barriers that have held back the North Sea since then, which is pretty amazing because, as you know, that part of Holland is below water level. So uh, the North Sea is higher than the land on the landward side of the dike, and a, a leak or a break or a fissure would be calamitous. hasn't happened because it was intolerable that people drowned. This is one of the massive differences between countries founded on Judeo-Christian principles, even if the origin of those principles is buried deep beneath the surface, as it is in the United States and in Europe today, where secularism is the order of the day, where secularism reigns, and where hostility to biblical faith is, is strong and intense. But at least let's give credit that this outlook, this style, this approach creates wealth and it creates a concern for human life. And those two aspects make all the difference in the world. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and you know my website already. And uh, if you don't, well, then you need to make a note of it. And if you've never visited there, please visit there right now. It is RabbiDanielLappin.com, R-A-B-B-I, RabbiDanielLappin, L-A-P-I-N, RabbiDanielLappin.com. Head over there, won't you? And uh, first of all, use the opportunity to sign up for Thought Tools. Make sure you get my weekly mailings. Uh, I keep them short in order to use as little of your time as possible and to make sure that I give you enough value to justify your investment of time. And uh, you can also see anything else that is going on on my website. You can also send me um, an email message. 
and uh, I love hearing from you. Quick break and uh, moving right on to segment number two of episode 15 of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Don't go away. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The Jeff Fisher Show. If someone comes up to you in a parking lot and says, hey, want to buy an iPad mini for, you know, a couple hundred dollars under retail? A, it's either tile from the bathroom, or B, it really is an iPad mini that was stolen and you're buying stolen stuff. So perhaps if someone comes up to you in a parking lot and says, hey, want to buy an iPad mini? You can say, no, thank you. The Jeff Fisher Show, Saturday morning, 6 to 8 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hi, everybody, and uh, welcome back. On to segment two, the second part of the 15th podcast in the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show series uh, here on the Blaze. And uh, I want to talk for a moment about uh, Volkswagen. I I think everybody knows that there's been this uh, massive... Uh, Volkswagen scandal, and um, uh, it, it, it affects uh, possibly up to 10 million cars. They're saying 8.5 million at the moment, but maybe 10 million cars. And uh, the fine that nobody knows yet what the total fine that's going to be levied against Volkswagen is, but uh, the low end is about $1,000 per vehicle, and the high end uh, could be well over $10,000 per vehicle. Right, so we're talking about a massive sum of money, and uh, we don't yet know how long it's going to take Volkswagen to sort of recover um, in, in the sense that um, uh, the, the, the fines that they're paying uh, represent a massive drag on their balance sheet. And... Um, and it's, it, it's a liability that trails. We don't even know where it ends. And so, obviously, it places uh, quite a burden on the company. Uh, let's just, for the moment, take a look at one of the vehicles in the Volkswagen lineup because uh, you may not be in the market for a midsize SUV, but if you are... I think you'll be very pleased to know that the Volkswagen Touareg, now that's spelt T-O-U-A-R-E-G. Um, it's uh, T-O-U-A-R, so it's, spelled, it's usually pronounced Touareg, Touareg, the Touareg. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a car that Volkswagen built. But here's the interesting thing. It was designed and constructed uh, in a joint project by Porsche and Volkswagen because they're linked at a corporate level. And so Porsche developed the famous uh, high-performance Porsche Cayenne uh, SUV that, um, uh, that, that is found in, in fancy areas. And uh, Volkswagen did the towering. But here's the funny thing. They're built on exactly the same platform. They're on the same chassis. Uh, they share components like um, transmission. Uh, the all-wheel drive system is the same in both. The suspension is the same, although it's tuned a little bit differently in each car just because of its intended usage. The windshield is the same. The doors are the same. 
And uh, I guess the point I'm making is that in my, uh, to my way of thinking, the Touareg is a really good buy. It's a high quality, it's a really upper end premium SUV dressed up with a Volkswagen name badge. But uh, you are, uh, are, are getting, in, and again, I'll just tell you, if you are looking for, and I, I don't own one and I don't work for Volkswagen, but uh, I am interested in cars, and uh, I happen to know that if you are looking for a, a sort of mid-size five-seat SUV, it does not have a third row. Many SUVs will offer you a third row of seats, which are usually, and you should be aware, of this, only good for kids. I mean, they're small, but at least at least they're good for kids. So, if you need to uh, to have six or seven seats in your SUV, then this isn't for you. But if you're just looking for a high-quality SUV at a really good price. I mean, you are, you are paying a, a middle-market price for an upper-market vehicle. That's just, that's just how it, uh, it works out. Another example of that is a car that's no longer for sale in America, but it was the Volkswagen Phaeton. Um, and again, I'm not going to discuss it now because it's, no, it's not that relevant because the car hasn't been sold. But again, for a fantastically competitive price, because it's Volkswagen badged, uh, you had a car that literally was um, uh, a very, very high-end vehicle. Uh, you know that uh, Volkswagen is, on a corporate level, linked to um, very, very upper-end uh, machines. Yeah, uh, that's right. Um, Volkswagen uh, is is linked. It's called the Volkswagen Group, but they they own Bentley, Lamborghini, Audi, Porsche, uh, Bugatti for for what that's worth. But uh, anyway, I, the point is that uh, that it's one of those instances, and it happens every now and then with with large uh, order conglomerates like this, where you can get a car that is really an upper end car. It's much it has much more in common uh, with Audi and Porsche than with a Volkswagen Passat, for instance. But anyway, okay, that's, the, uh, that's just the, 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 the commercial part of the discussion. The, the other part that, that is sort of more interesting to me is that uh, Volkswagen is being hit with these fines by every regulatory authority everywhere. And so these massive sums of money that are going to be all right, and Volkswagen did something wrong. Let's let's concede that. Uh, but you know, one of the phrases you keep hearing is proportionality in the international community. So, for instance, um, when Israel attacked Gaza after considerable missiles, uh, missile bombing from Gaza to Israel, uh, they were attacked for a disproportional response. Well, look, in war. There is no such thing as proportionality. There's only winning and losing. And uh, you'd be a fool. You'd be a complete idiot in war if, um, if you decide to administer only proportional punishment to your enemy. In exactly the same way that uh, if you woke up in the middle of the night to find three uh, hooded assailants armed in your house, and um, and and now you've got to say to yourself, well, what would be the proportional response? Well, I'll tell you what you should do. You should pump 
five or six rounds into each one to make absolutely sure that they don't have the capacity to do what so many others have done in home invasions, which is torment, torture, and murder your family. There's no such thing as a proportional response. And so you, one sort of has to really get rid of that idea because it's complete nonsense. Where does it come from? It comes from uh, law, a proportional response in law. And there what we mean by that is that uh, if somebody steals a loaf of bread from a market, chopping off their arm is a disproportional response, I think most people in the West would feel. Uh, others elsewhere apparently disagree. But uh, we, we do begin to understand, at least, that proportionality in response is something we do do in law. Okay, so... Uh, if, um, uh, if, if somebody rides with only, uh, well, let's put it this way. If somebody uh, goes through a, a, um, uh, a stoplight, a, you know, a, a fraction of a second after it turns red and, um, and cameras catch him, and you know, of course, that in cities around the country, uh, camera companies have been brought in to set up cameras, and they split the take with the city. It's thoroughly immoral. It's, it's highly out of order for cities to use traffic fines to uh, build up their uh, financial uh, viability. It's, 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 that's not, it's not what law enforcement is supposed to be about. But if, uh, if somebody got a $10,000 fine, for a uh, you know rolling through a through a stop sign or 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 going through a fraction of a second after it turns red, I think everyone would say, look, that's disproportionate. But when regulatory authorities impose fines, nobody allows the discussion to go into the area of proportionality. It's as if there is extortion without limit. It's as if the barriers are removed and regulators go for absolutely whatever they can get. And so is it, is it, really, is it really proportional to fine a car company $10,000, $15,000 per car that had on it a uh, – and by the way, so just again to note, these cars were perfectly safe. The only thing that they had on them was some kind of device that uh, changed the readings for regulators in terms of mileage and, and uh, pollution and so on. And so regulators literally now are applying draconian penalties. But wait a second. Why is the money going to the regulatory agencies? I mean, you can imagine what a bonanza it is for them. We had a similar sort of thing when states sued the tobacco companies. This is already almost ancient history. Uh, but again, states piled on the tobacco companies because it was a way of uh, getting money. And here, regulators are doing um, exactly the same thing. What should happen? Well, I have a far better solution if, if there was any kind of justice here. And if this was not an example of government gone mad, expanded government overreaching, 
then I have a very simple solution, something that would make much more sense and something that uh, would enable Volkswagen to continue uh, paying dividends to its investors and to uh, keep its employees working. What is that? Stay tuned for uh, the next segment, ep uh, segment three of the 15th episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. My website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and I will return. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Pure Opelka with Mike Opelka. This week on Pure Opelka, we'll talk about the Pope. We'll talk about Putin. We'll talk about Biden's finger gun. And we'll also tell a fish story. A very big and delightful and cute fish story. Join us, won't you? Pure Opelka, Saturdays, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, here we are. This is your rabbi revealing how the world really works. And one of the ways the world really works is that uh, the money side of it is, is really important. And very often, by following the money, you get a pretty good idea of who's doing what to whom. And in this case, with uh, Volkswagen being hit with uh, fines that, that are somewhere between 1000 and maybe $20,000 per car impacted, nobody yet knows. It won't be less than $1,000 a car, but uh, in all probability, significantly higher. Uh, and all of that money going to where? the regulatory agencies in the United States and in Europe. That's right. What a bonanza for them. Can you imagine getting that money coming into your office, into your department? Not only are you a hero, but look how much you have to spend. You can hire more of your pals. Uh, you can move into fancier digs. It's great. It's great. If you work in a governmental bureaucracy and you get a whole lot more money into your budget, that's fun. You can have junkets. Um, actually, you know, they don't call them junkets. They call them off-site programs or off-site retreats. But we, we understand what they are. It's, it's great. Better way to do it. What is a better way to do it? Well, let's figure this out. Just take a look. Um, what is the, you know, the, the, the Volkswagen car? I mean, and you, you sort of look across the range. And I think this only impacted the diesels. But... You know, let's say that uh, they get about, I don't know, shall we say, uh, uh, 25 miles a gallon on average, somewhere around about there. We're not, we're not far out. And, uh, and what do most drivers drive? Uh, 10 to 20,000 miles a year, somewhere between uh, 1,000 miles, just under 1,000 miles a month to, to 1,500 miles a month, something like that. But let's, let's average, let's say, Average, you know, I don't know, 15,000 miles a year. So that means that um, they're using about, you know, roughly just ballparking 500 ga gallons of gasoline. Okay? And what is, all right, well, that's about 500 gallons of gasoline. Now, let's, let's say that this is now uh, not correct and that Volkswagen was concealing the actual consumption and that those cars don't get, on average, 
and we, I'm just ballparking the figures, but you'll see the point. Uh, I said that Volkswagen cars, I thought, got about 25 miles a gallon, but now it turns out, let's say, that they're only going to get, shall we say, 20 miles a gallon, which, uh, which by the way, I mean, is, uh, is way more of a difference. In other words, the amount of real difference reflected in the Volkswagen chicanery might be uh, one mile a gallon or, or even less than that. But I'm, I'm going to say even let's imagine the difference between what, is, what was claimed and what is true is, shall we say, five miles a gallon. That means uh, this driver is now going to use about 750 gallons a year. So um, he's using um, about 250 gallons more a year. Now, how much does 250 gallons uh, cost? Well, let's even say that um, let's even say that that is uh, let's say it's three dollars a gallon. Okay, so the difference that the drivers uh, that that the drive I hope I'm not being confusing here. Uh, previously, when you bought your Volkswagen car, you thought you were going to use 500 gallons a year. Turns out you're going to use 750 gallons a year. At its worst. That means 250 gallons extra, which you didn't know you were going to have to buy. You thought it was going to be less than that. And 250 gallons, let's say $3 a gallon, call it $750. I'm going to round it up to $1,000, which is ridiculous. But okay, so now, uh, because of this uh, discrepancy, you're going to spend $1,000 on gas a year more than you were intending. How long do drivers keep their cars for on average? Six, seven years. Some people more, some people a lot less, but I don't know, let's say six, seven years. So, um, uh, so that would be about, um, what did I say? Uh, let me just not get confused. <laughs> I'm confusing me. So I said, uh, 500 gallons is what you thought you were going to be using a year. It turns out to be uh, 750 gallons a year, an extra 250 gallons. Um, call that uh, $750, all right? Uh, something, something like that. Is, am I right? 250 gallons, about, yeah, okay, fine. About $750 in, uh, in gas. Keep your car for a few years. So that's going to be about five or six thousand uh, dollars of gas more if I if I have these these figures right. So now, what's what should be done? Well, Volkswagen should cut a check to owners of their cars. That's all, according to a formula based something along this kind of calculation. Why? Why do the regulators come in for ten or fifteen or twenty thousand dollars per car? Why? How does that help the 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 consumer? Not at all. But this this is what goes on. This now should should you know this should be uh, a very simple deal between Volkswagen and its customers. It should it should want to recover trust, and Volkswagen would much rather do that and give their customers something and, and have customers end up feeling good about the company. But this way, they end up having to pay a fortune. It's going to go to the regulators. And then on a completely separate level, 
uh, owners can file a class action suit against Volkswagen and uh, lawyers will clean up and Volkswagen will have to pay who knows how much else. I mean, as you can tell, uh, my sympathies are to some extent with, uh, with Volkswagen, yes. I think that if I owned a Volkswagen car, I would probably feel um, somewhat put out and I would like some compensation because I might have been misled. Again, not everybody buys cars based on the exact consumption figures, but whatever. You know, let, let Volkswagen sort that out with their customers. But why the regulators? Why the infinite power of government to impose gargantuan fines that could literally imperil the ongoing ability of a company like that to function. It certainly will impact their earnings for the next few years. Now, yes, they did something wrong, but um, I, I would just say this, that it, it is something wrong on a totally different level from supplying cars with defective brakes or uh, uh, bad tires or in, in any way cars that, uh, that posed a threat to human life and health or cars that um, had inbuilt flaws that assured that they would not last for very long. No, it was nothing like that. Um, these were uh, flaws, these were devices that, that were built into the car in order to deceive governmental agencies. My concern, obviously, is uh, whether governmental agencies should be engaged in this kind of thing in the very first place. Do we really want the government to have a department, uh, an environmental protection agency? Is that really part of the ingenious vision of government by the people, of the people, for the people that the founders conceived of? An environmental protection agency whose power is so enormous and whose budget is so massive. Do, is that really what we want? And, uh, and now the agency gets strengthened only more by being able to collect billions and billions of dollars. Yes, that's billions with a B, a lot of money, through what is essentially an extortion racket with Volkswagen. Volkswagen obviously has only itself to blame. They, they obviously um, made a terrible mistake here. But, um, and I'm not, I'm not excusing that, obviously. But I am questioning whether it is a governmental agency that should be profiting from that. I, you know, I can well hear that, uh, that a small-sized, appropriate government agency would say to Volkswagen, look, you know what, you want to continue selling in the United States, you're going to have to pay all your customers $1,000 or $2,000, whatever they decide is the formula to compensate people who might be spending more money on gas than they anticipated doing. Okay, fine, I'd, I'd have no trouble with that. But that's not what's happening at all, not at all. Uh, all part of a, um, a, a downward trend in society, which means uh, an upward trend for government, because the more space in your life that government takes, the less space there is for you. 
And one of the other mechanisms for increasing the size of government, if you didn't already know, the climate. We don't call it global warming anymore because it's impossible to prove. We'll call it climate change. And yes, I am a, and listen to it, I'm a climate skeptic. Worse than that, I'm a climate denier. Listen to the words that are used today to define anybody who questions the reigning orthodoxy on climate. I'll explain how the latest victim to fall to the religion of climatology uh, coming right up in just a moment. Don't go away. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Pat and Stu. Now that's a little bit closer to denying the link to CO2 and climate change and is denying the link between Bill Nye and being a scientist because he's not one. He's not. He, he is not one. He's, he's an engineer. He's not a guy. He's, he's an old man. He's a science He's a science-esque guy. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you. Yes, this is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, and uh, we are in the uh, fourth segment of this show, the 15th show in the series, and uh, talking about following the money when it comes to climate. And uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because it begins to resemble a religion, uh, a religion in, in, in all of the very negative ways that, that religions sometimes manifest, uh, which is a cruel intolerance uh, to those who uh, speak heresy. After all, we know that people have been burned at the stake, right, in by early Christianity, uh, People who were heret heretics were burned at the stakes. Yes. Uh, people who uttered blasphemy. Right? And, and to this very day, not, not in Christianity and not in Judaism and not in the Latter-day Saints Church, but uh, there are religions in this big world of ours in which those who blaspheme uh, the, uh, the, the leader or the founder of the faith uh, get killed. That's all there is to it. That's what happens. Well, a very similar thing happens to those who uh, utter blasphemy or heresy about the religion of climate change. They even use the language, you know, uh, they say skeptic, right? When, when do you ordinarily hear the word skeptic used? About religion. You know, people say, I'm skeptical of organized religion. Uh, they use the word denier. And that they've taken from uh, the Holocaust. In other words, to be a Holocaust denier is a terrible thing. Forget about free speech. I mean, in, in, in Canada, as well as in Europe, there are people in jail for denying the Holocaust, which I think is a terrible, terrible thing. But... Um, here, this term denier is used with climate. Who is the latest victim? Well, uh, in France, most of the television is government-run, and on uh, the television, 
station called France 2, uh, there was a weatherman. And he was like, everybody knew him. You know, he was he was like a, a massive celebrity. Uh, his name was Philippe Verdier. Philippe Verdier. And uh, he he has been for 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 years. He's been a household name, broadcasting the weather every single evening, and people recognized him wherever he went. Well, he's just published a book, and uh, the book is called Climate Investigation. And in the book, he writes that. Um, Climatologists and politicians have taken the world hostage by misleading them with climate information. And uh, he issued a promotional video for the big book, by the way, Mr. Verdi, and he says in, in the video, he says, every night I address five million French people to talk to you about the wind, the clouds, and the sun. And yet there is something important, very important, that I have not been able to tell you because it's neither the time nor the place to do so, meaning on television news. We are hostage to a planetary scandal over climate change, a war machine whose aim is to keep us in fears, to keep us in fear. Well, uh, needless to say, uh, he was told not to bother to come to work. <laughs> and, uh, and so... Mr. Philippe Verdier, who, who made the point, which I think you all know, which is that top climate scientists almost always rely on government funding for their jobs, have all been manipulated and politicized. What is the idea? What's going on here? Well, it's a you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Uh, today, anything in the way of serious funding, and if you're a professor at a university, you're an academician, which is pretty much where climate scientists hang out, uh, then you are dependent upon government funding because your job depends on the university getting money to keep your programs going. And uh, the source for this money is, and you can't imagine how much money the government gives to universities every year, how much of it is wasted on the most nonsensical and stupid studies um, millions and millions of dollars go to various universities and colleges to conduct utterly meaningless and stupid studies. But um, the way this thing works is, as I say, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Governments count on universities to provide validation of the fact that uh, the climate is worsening. How does this help government? Well, it validates, endorses, and justifies expansion of government and expansion of taxation. That's, that's all it is. Because if you think about it, uh, as soon as human beings, and particularly docile ones like we Americans are today, um, as soon as you explain to us why the government needs more money, we go, sure, go ahead. As long as you take it from him, not from me, that's all. I mean, that's, that's the attitude. And, uh, and so you know, they, they've taken and continue to take as much as they possibly can, you know, for street repair and for this but, and for regulation, all these things. But climate provides a wonderful excuse to expand government. Now, one of the uh, nice things that the whole climate thing does 
is allows government now to reach very deep into the economy, which it loves doing, and you've seen what's happened with medicine, but it loves doing because what it then does is uh, reach into the economy uh, favoring the production of wind power and solar power, renewable energy. All of these things, ordinarily, I think you and I would simply have said, hey, stay out of it. You know, we are we believe in the Constitution. Stay out of it. It's nothing to do with government. Not your job to, to rule how much power has to be generated by wind and solar. We've got a better idea. Why don't we just let the market decide? And that would have been that, excepting that government now has a wonderful response. We can't let the market decide because the market doesn't care about the fact that we're destroying our environment and threatening the climate. The market doesn't care about that. And so responsible adults, namely the government, has to step in and make absolutely sure that somebody is looking after the future. After all, you wouldn't like to wake up or your children wake up to discover that the world is in chaos with water flooding Miami Beach and Manhattan. And you saw what happened with Hurricane Sandy, didn't you? Well, it's only going to get worse. And so, yes, we have to mandate that from now onwards, uh, and by next year and the year after that, so and so much percentage of the power has to be produced. Okay, so how does this help government? <laughs> well, it's very simple. Government isn't a disembodied, um, abstract entity. Government is human beings who either are bureaucrats and have jobs in government, or they are elected and have positions. Either way, they like to keep those in the same way as you like to keep your job, provided you could get the kind of benefits and raises that the public sector gets. And, uh, and so as long as there is manipulation, as long as there's stuff going on, there is room to uh, accept bribes. Now, we don't really call them bribes, do we? We call them uh, lobbying and fees and the, all kinds of wonderful things happen. But uh, if the uh, generation of power was strictly market-controlled, then the government's out of it and there's nothing for them to do. But uh, why do you think, do you remember early on in the Obama administration, massive payments to Solyndra, which then went broke, a, uh, a solar energy company? Why did that happen? <laughs> well, because very large sums of money were paid to officials and to uh, elected representatives. And that can all be done. But it can only be done if rationale is provided to voters for why the government is needed to do these things. That, my friends, is how it works. Scare the populace about climate change. Uh, rely on uh, academicians, intellectuals, universities to provide the backup. Yes, it's getting serious. Use the power of, of government and uh, quasi-governmental organizations to punish anybody 
who dares to challenge the doctrines of climatology and uh, keep this thing going because it justifies governments spending money. It justifies uh, the possibility of corruption, bribery, large sums of money changing hands. Ideally, what we want is a situation where government is not in the business of picking economic winners and losers. But the insane obsession with climate, all you've got to do is follow the money. And you've got to see that all those people who work in universities, who speak of climate change, they all exist. No, they do better than exist. They thrive on government grants. And in return, all the government asks is that they provide a validation and a justification for raising taxes and increasing the size of government. Because after all, solving the climate problem is, according to our president, one of the biggest problems facing America at the moment. Well, I understand that. If, if you're a politician, you understand it as well. Back in just a moment. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Coming up in the next program, we'll go in-depth on Donald Trump's tax plan. Will it work? Is it feasible? The name of my tax plan is called Trump, and it's going to be huge. Plus, I'll tell you why dolphin lives matter. Oh, no. What happened at the Ferguson Aquarium? The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hi, everybody. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. This is episode 15, and uh, we're on uh, segment number five. While I was in Israel recently, um, I had some very interesting conversations. And as many of you know, almost everybody who goes to Israel manages to have the most interesting conversations. It's just that kind of place. Uh, it's really the only place in the world I know of where you can sit in a sidewalk cafe um, having breakfast one morning. And uh, at the next table, you got uh, two people having a deep conversation on the philosophy of Kierkegaard. And another table over, you've got uh, two uh, military officers having a conversation about Egypt. And I mean, eavesdropping, eavesdropping in uh, Jerusalem or Tel Aviv cafes is, is like the, a wonderfully high reward fun activity. Anyway, that's not where I got my information. But um, uh, I did discover something which I didn't understand or know about before. And, and that was that um, uh, the head of Egypt, Mr. Sisi, is a very bright light on, that, uh, on the horizon in that part of the world. The guy understands how things work. Now, the West doesn't like him. Obama, the president, doesn't like him. And uh, European liberals don't like him. But he's actually, I mean, basically things have been peaceful between Egypt and Israel. And more than that, 
is actually deep in conversation with the Israelis. They're dealing with a lot of shared concerns. And you know what the shared concerns are? Muslim extremists. Most of them hanging out in a place called Gaza. And uh, they bother Mr. Sisi every bit as much as they bother Mr. Netanyahu. And what I discovered, uh, to my fascination, was that uh, way out of sight of the press, way out of sight of uh, any nosy busybodies, uh, the, the, the head of Israel and the head of Egypt are deep in conversation. And that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Now, um, why does our administration loathe Mr. Sisi? Uh, very simply because he's, um, he's hostile to Arab extremism, to Islamic extremism. I shouldn't have said Arab. I should have said Islamic extremism. Um, he's, he's opposed to that. Uh, you might remember the Arab Spring um, had, uh, not only embraced by our administration but actively encouraged Gosh, that's a word that's going to go down in infamy, as they say, the Arab Spring. Who's that been good for? Anybody? But um, when the Arab Spring toppled the pro-Western government of, of Egypt, um, that, was, that was cause for delight on the part of an administration that doesn't care for the West. That's true. And, um, and to their dismay, the guy that they put in, Morsi, who was a uh, very big um, Islamic radical himself, uh, was replaced by Mr. Sisi. Mr. Sisi is terrific. And if he had his way, he would have had a very strong and good relationship with the United States. But unfortunately, uh, the United States didn't want a relationship with him because he came into power against... All right, you know all the stories already. Um, so um, what, what is going on? Well, uh, recently the president did an interview on 60 Minutes. In that interview, and I, I, by the way, this is, this is such a shocking thing that uh, the full impact of what I'm about to tell you can probably only be gained by going back and, and listening to a little bit of that interview just so as you can see how many times in the interview the president referred to Syria as Russia's only ally in the Middle East. And uh, again repeatedly the president insisted that Russia's status in the Middle East has not changed in the last six or seven years. Well, um, <laughs> all right. Well, this isn't correct. This isn't correct. Uh, for one thing, um, for one thing, the I, I, I don't even know how to how to fully. Um, Okay, so you all know, of course, that, that Russia has got involved in Syria, propping up the Assad regime and um, uh, doing everything it has to do there in order to uh, renew its Middle East involvement. But for what reason, my friends? Why, why would Russia be wanting to do this? 
the answer that totally eludes our administration is for business. That's all. When you have a military relationship and nations trust you the way they used to trust America in the second half of the 20th century or part of the second half of the 20th century, um, you know, why do you think American economic power grew so dramatically after World War II? Part of it was that Japan trusted us to take care of things and we became their biggest trading partner. And so it was Germany trusted us after World War II, and so we became their biggest trading partner. And the beneficiary of all this was every single American because wealth flowed to the United States through these relationships. And so what uh, our administration fails to understand is that when military reality fades, when our capacity to uh, maintain and project authority and power, when that vanishes, what vanishes along with it is the capacity for trade. How does all this work? Well, uh, let's look at it this way. You'll remember that um, when uh, President Mohamed Morsi who was installed by our administration and the Arab Spring in Egypt, when he was toppled, because he was a disaster. And the Egyptian military coup established and, um, and put Mr. Sisi in power. And yes, it wasn't democratic. I'm not sure that democracy is a bigger virtue than tranquility that allows people to eat and stay alive. And Egypt, I mean, the notion of democracy in Egypt is absurd. It, it never has been, and it won't be in our lifetimes. It's not possible. It's not part of that culture. And this notion that America can come in and impose democracy as part of our nation building well, that's just a big, fat laugh. My website, rabbidaniellappin.com. I'll be back in just a moment. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Patents Stew. Now, that's a little bit closer to denying the link to CO2 and climate change and is denying the link between Bill Nye and being a scientist because he's not one. He's not. He, he is not one. He's, he's an engineer. He's not a guy. He's, he's an old man. He's a science, he's a science-esque guy. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Hello, everybody. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, Episode 15, moving right along with uh, Segment 6. And uh, yes, what happened? Well, uh, the Arab Spring was encouraged by our administration. 
uh, it got rid of a government that had worked in Egypt. It worked. It was a government that cooperated with Israel, cooperated with the United States. It worked. Was it totally free of corruption? Was it democratic? No, 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 of course not. But, ladies and gentlemen, we need a government that recognizes American interests, not ideologies. We need a government that is much less concerned with, oh, exporting American values than a government that protects American interests. Because when American interests are preserved, then you live a little better, a little more securely, a little bit more financially stable. And so uh, what happened is that um, uh, the Arab Spring replaced the Egyptian government with um, President Mohamed Morsi, a, a rabid Islamicist, um, and, and a really, really bad guy, which uh, would help explain why our administration just love him. And they went completely berserk when a, an Egyptian military coup got rid of him because he was bad for everybody, and they installed Mr. Sisi. Democra democratically, of course not. But it turned out that he was a massive improvement, doing fantastically well, both in the region and in the country. What was America's response to that? You may not know this. You know, it's impossible to keep up with everything, which I guess is one of the reasons we have podcasts. But do you know what uh, America's uh, uh, response was? To withhold all our financial aid from Egypt. Billions of dollars stopped going, which they'd been counting on. I, look, I, I'm against it. I don't think there should be foreign aid of any kind, not to Egypt, not to Israel, not to anybody. But overnight to Yankus, why? Because they were piqued. They were irritated. How dare they get rid of the guy that our administration liked and replace him with somebody else, namely Mr. Sisi. So guess what happened? As soon as America withheld all that military aid, which Egypt had been counting upon, who stepped in to fill the void? And who immediately, I mean, it took days. It didn't take months, days. Russia came in and did a deal with the Egyptians for $2 billion in arms. Now, who does that help? Well, it, it helps Mr. Putin. It helps the Russian government. But above all, it helps people in Russia because that, that $2 billion means work and activity and, and, uh, and business thriving. It's a fantastic deal. So America's loss Russia's gains. And so what, what happened since then? Egypt's ties with Russia deepened. And eventually, a free trade zone was set up. Are you aware of this? Russia and Egypt have a sort of special economic zone that uh, includes Russia and Kazakhstan and Armenia and Belarus and Egypt. Big gain for Putin, big gain for the Russians, very good for the Egyptians, terrible for Americans. But now Egypt is essentially an ally of Russia, 
not of ours. I mention that because I want you to remember that a week ago on, um, on uh, um, 60 Minutes, the president said the only ally that Russia has in the region is Syria. Well, that's not true. They now have Egypt. But wait, we're not done yet. Um, guess who's been hanging around Russia lately? The whole summer, by the way. A Saudi deputy crown prince and also the minister of defense, a guy called Mohammed bin Salman al-Saud, right? obviously related to the ruling family in Saudi Arabia. He's been hanging out in Russia with Mr. Putin. And uh, what has he done? Well, they first of all set up a, uh, a number of trade cooperation agreements. And um, <laughs> uh, basically, bottom line, my friends, is that the Saudis are moving from being an American ally of sorts into a Russian ally. That's what's happening there. Uh, just recently, uh, President uh, Vladimir Putin met with the same, with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman al-Sud, where uh, he met with him in, um, in that place where they had the Olympics in Russia, Sochi. Um, what are they doing? Having discussions, working out deals, arranging things. My friends, uh, the Saudis are now uh, closer to a deal with Russia than they are to us. Why? Because they don't feel they can trust us. And now they felt that America gave Russia a free hand in Syria, which you'll remember the administration's notorious red lines that are going to mean real consequences if they're crossed. Well, the Russians did more than cross them. The Syrians did more than cross them. And so uh, the Saudis watch and see that uh, America let the Syrians do what they like, the, uh, the, the Syrian government. Uh, they've handed nuclear power to the Iranians. And who is supplying Iran with everything? Russia. That's right. Who do you think is going to get the bulk of the money that Iran is going to be spending in the next little while? Russia is. And so the Saudis do what is the perfectly logical thing. Uh, they hitch their wagon to a more reliable star than the United States, and that more reliable star is Russia. And so um, when the president said that Russia has not expanded in the Middle East at all during his uh, presidency, not true. Flagrant, total, complete untruth. It's simply not true. The fact is that... Uh, Russia's influence in the region has massively increased in the last few years. The result, bad for us monetarily, good for the Russians monetarily. And the, uh, the two things, money and military, go hand in hand. Because uh, when you have more money, you can build a more successful military. And a more successful military makes it possible for your country to make more money. Why? Because people want to be your friend. But when people don't trust you, when your friends don't trust you, and your enemies don't fear you, 
Well, it's very hard to set up trade. Very hard. Because people would rather do business with those who can benefit them. Just think about that. Think about how you pick a supplier. If somebody told you that there are two auto dealers, one is on his last legs, possibly going out of business, the other one is vibrant and growing and has a terrific uh, 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 service department, where do you buy your car, all things being equal? Don't you go to the place that can take care of you in the future? You wouldn't go to the place that's winding down, right? Two plumbers need your business. One of them says, if I don't get your business, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out of business. You, I desperately need this job. You've got to hire me. And somebody else barely returns your calls. He's so busy. Who are you going to want to take care of your plumbing? The guy who's taking care of a lot of other people's and is doing well and apparently thriving? Or the guy who says, oh, I'll really take care of you because I desperately need your work. No, because you don't know if he'll be there tomorrow. And it's exactly the same way in international trade. Countries choose to do business with countries that they can look to for a longer-term, more reliable interaction. It's kind of how it works. And uh, unfortunately, we are – we've been – terribly, terribly damaged economically. And uh, why aren't we seeing it? Well, uh, administrations have a lot of power to camouflage economic conditions. And a lot of that is really going on right now. We'll take a quick break and uh, back with you in just a moment. Go nowhere. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Pure Opelka with Mike Opelka. This week on Pure Opelka, we'll talk about the Pope. We'll talk about Putin. We'll talk about Biden's finger gun. And we'll also tell a fish story. A very big and delightful and cute fish story. Join us, won't you? Pure Opelka. Saturdays, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where everybody needs a rabbi, regardless of your religious background, or even if you have no religious background at all. Although perhaps then you might really need a rabbi. And I humbly submit my candidacy for your consideration as we look into why is it that Europe seems to have a death wish? Why is it that Europe appears to be trying to commit suicide on some level? Why do I say that? Well, uh, the challenge is to find any country on earth with a Muslim population above a certain proportion, above a certain percentage of the native population uh, w that functions, that doesn't become a, a severely problematic area. The challenge is to visit Europe and explain why 
the overwhelming majority of violent crimes and rape in Norway are committed by Muslim immigrants. And yes, of course, uh, the answer to that given out when I speak to Norwegian intellectuals is always the same. And that is that uh, the biggest mass murder in Norwegian history was committed by a blonde, white Norwegian native. <laughs> to which I, I respond, it's irrelevant. That is completely irrelevant. I mean, I, I am aware of that. I'm sorry that that happened. I'm sorry all those little children were murdered. But it's got nothing to do with the conversation about the level of crime in Norway. The same is true in Holland. The same is true in France. The same is true, yes, in Germany. So why are the Germans bringing in so many people and what's really going on there? Well, I think there's something rather interesting happening. And uh, first of all, I want to stress that it is almost impossible for us uh, in, on, on this side of the world to fully understand the lingering scar that World War II and the Nazi period left on the psyche of today's Germans. So whereas uh, today's Germans um, are, you know, the war 70 years ago, so there's not a whole lot of people walking around Germany today uh, who were part of that era. Uh, Angela Merkel was not part of that era, and very few people are. But the point is that everybody in Germany today feels burdened by a weight of guilt. And regardless of you know, whether they should or whether they shouldn't, that's just a reality. It is not <clears throat> it's not possible to spend any time visiting in Germany. It's not possible to read uh, the German weekly news magazine Der Spiegel, uh, on a regular basis without picking up on the fact that they are driven by a desire to prove that the demons of World War II have been banished. Banished. And the surest way to do that is to welcome refugees because they all know, and by the way, uh, there are laws in Germany that make it almost impossible for anybody to go through school and college education without having watched uh, newsreel footage of World War II. It is almost impossible to be a German today without being acutely aware that 70 years ago, refugees streamed across Europe. Refugees poured out of any place that the Germans came to. When the Germans invaded, it wasn't just the Jews who were desperately trying to get out. Everybody tried to get out. They were trying to get out of Germany, and then they were trying to get out of Poland, and then they were trying to get out of Belgium and France and Holland. And, uh, and so it was. Wherever they came, really millions of refugees started streaming across Europe. And Germans today... <coughs> Pardon me. Germans today um, are exquisitely attuned uh, to the uh, almost elegant reciprocity of the scenery in that 70 years ago, people were desperately trying to flee Germany and were becoming refugees all around the world. 
people ran away from Germany and they went to South America and they went to North America and they went to Israel, which was then Palestine, and they went to many, many, many other places uh, just to get away from the Nazis, to get away from the Germans. And so today's Germans see the, uh, the, the, the symmetry in that 70 years ago, refugees were streaming away from Germany and now refugees are streaming towards Germany. And they're saying, how can we not let them in? And that's very much a part of what is happening. But it's not all that is happening. There's something else happening as well. And, um, and that is that the only way to argue against the influx of refugees is to make observation of the fact that Muslims are different from Christians. And that, my friends, is the absolute unthinkable, immediately rejected alternative on the part of European intellectuals. The notion that a human being's behavior can be changed on account of a belief, an irrational, crazy belief in God, something outmoded and primitive, that is completely unacceptable. Their modern-day liberal conviction that all human beings are identical is so deeply implanted so as to be almost unshakable in our time. Their determination to believe that all human beings are equal overflows into the belief that all human beings are identical. And so something that began as all human beings should have an equal opportunity, all human beings should be as equal as, uh, be, be able to operate on an equal basis, that, that, that laudable conviction, even though that that is in itself um, simply not true, because for the obvious reasons I've explained previously in, in the podcast, that uh, there is no way, no matter what government does, and no matter what government says, and no matter what liberal doctrine preaches, there is absolutely no way a child born as the seventh child of a welfare mother who lives by herself or with her mother and has now seven children, all by seven different long-forgotten men, there is no way that that child has the same chance as, shall we say, the seventh child born into a loving, hardworking, shall I say, Christian family and uh, uh, with an intact mother and father married to one another, hard at work, trying to raise the economic basis of the family. There's no way these two little children have the same shot at life. They don't. And it's not possible for government to do anything about it without becoming a tyranny. And I'm not ruling that possibility out. But that deep desire for equality, which also drives the current insistence that income inequality is the biggest threat facing our country and other countries today, a viewpoint which is incorrect, but nonetheless deeply and widely believed, 
uh, leads Europe to absolutely commit itself to the idea that all immigrants are the same. And so uh, they, for instance, speak about the fact that uh, the refugees of World War II went on to build successful lives. Would anybody argue that the Jews that arrived in America uh, fleeing World War II, either before or after or during, uh, would anyone argue that uh, they were a problem for America? Would anyone argue that, uh, that uh, many, <clears throat> many Bosnians who came would anyone argue that French who came in earlier centuries to escape uh, wars in, in France, would anyone argue that the uh, Englishmen who came in the 17th century and the 18th century um, to escape problems in England, would anyone argue that these people were bad for America? Of course not, because they, they haven't been bad. They've been wonderful, and this is why Hostility to migrants in Europe is totally incomprehensible to European liberals. They simply cannot accept the notion, which I'm sure makes you feel a little queasy as well, which is that, hey, Muslims are mostly different. Not every Muslim. There is, there is no question that uh, amidst the millions of Muslims streaming towards Europe, uh, of course there are many, many who are good, but the world works with statistical probability. Your insurance company recognizes that if you happen to be a really wonderful, responsible 19-year-old male, they feel sorry for you that your insurance, your car insurance rates are going to be so high, but they go on incontrovertible statistics, uh, which is that uh, the proportion of 18-year-old males involved in bad auto collisions is much, much, much higher than even 18-year-old females and certainly 45-year-old uh, males or females. So it's, it's recognized and it's, it's understood. The reality is that uh, statistically, um, it's very difficult to find, well, not statistically, absolutely, it's very difficult to find any instance of um, uh, terror attacks not committed by Muslims you know, in the last 30 or 40 years. Very difficult. And it's very difficult to find um, uh, other demographic groups in Europe that have the crime rate of Muslims. But um, you're not allowed to note that. And the only way when it is forced into the public debate, <coughs> the explanation is always poverty. What we've got to do is do more for these people. And so, sure enough, in fact, even now, uh, Germany is um, upping the, uh, what they're giving. <coughs> They've just agreed in Germany to spend an additional 6 billion euros. Uh, and they're estimating that before the end of this year, it's going to go to 10 billion euros. And uh, this is for uh, cash handouts, vouchers, food, clothing, housing, medicine, etc., etc., etc. And, uh, and they're certain that all that will happen is that this is just to get the people onto a good footing and everything then will be fine. And, uh, and obviously, uh, I have to admit, uh, it's, it's not impossible that that is the case, but it's just statistically improbable. 
Um, a quick pause, and uh, I will share with you just uh, a little bit more on uh, on this that is really quite alarming. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. Greece is a welfare state, literally. Greece is Newark, New Jersey. Greece has lived off other people's money for years. And one of the most brilliant quotes ever, which happens to apply here, it's the Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher, who notably said, the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The final segment of uh, episode 15 of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Welcome. Thanks so much for being with me all this time, all the way through this podcast, um, as we finish off talking about why it is that Europe seems to be committing suicide. Why is it that people who seem to be otherwise sensible, intelligent people who know how to build Porsches and Audis and Mercedes-Benzes and Volkswagens um, are willing to endure what's now happening. Well, bottom line is, of course, that all those good German burgers who do build on the, on the assembly lines, the Porsches and the Volkswagens and the Audis and the Mercedes-Benzes um, and the BMWs, no, they are not that crazy about it. You know why? Because... You know the answer. They are the ones whose neighborhoods are being set up to accept migrants from the Middle East and North Africa. The folks who are making the policy, the uh, intellectual and political elite in Germany, they are comfortably isolated. They live in downtown condos on high floors, they live in gated communities. They live in pretty suburbs that are far too expensive to use for immigrant resettlement programs. And uh, this clash between the intellectual and political elite of the country and the folks who really are the ones who are going to have to pay the price, it's their taxes that are going up. It's their neighborhoods that are being transformed. Um, it is them who will become victims of the rise in crime uh, not surprisingly, there is a, uh, a noticeable rise in the power of political parties and political leaders in Holland, France, and Germany uh, who are coming down hostile and building up tremendous fellowship uh, based on doing whatever they can to stem the tide of, uh, of, of immigrant arrivals. And so... Uh, uh, let me let me tell you what one of the things that uh, they say. They say, look, um, uh, yes, of course, we agree that newcomers do need housing and schools and health care and handout. Of course, we understand that. And we also understand that they do depress wages at the, at the low end, obviously. You know, the, and yes, they could become a big underclass, could change that to would. But um, they say... Uh, no, it doesn't matter because Europe needs new immigrants. It needs people. And, um, and as, as far as people who worry about the immigrants not fitting in, 
And I'm now quoting to you, by the way, from The Economist, which is a liberal elite magazine out of England but, uh, but focused on Europe and America. Uh, what they say is, and I'm reading literally word for word from the uh, September the 12th issue of The Economist, um, the old idea of Christendom still lurks within modern European identity. <laughs> and, um, and they're extremely down on Czechoslovakia and Hungary for insisting that they do not want immigrants uh, precisely because it is distorting the Christian nature of those countries. That's really what's happening. Hungary's prime minister, his name is Viktor Orban, um, he's hated by liberal Europeans now because he will not accept these people. He's, he doesn't care. He's not having them. And, um, and, you know, and, and, of course, the liberal Europe says, oh, you are raising up the specter of Nazi concentration camps or you're, in, you're insensitive to the picture of East Germans once fleeing across Hungarian barbed wire 26 years ago. Okay, never mind. Um, there is some sanity in Czechoslovakia and in Hungary uh, where about 70% of the population has expressed strong hostility to taking in any migrants from uh, Middle East and North Africa. And, uh, and that's really uh, what's going on here, you see, because the possibility, the possibility that... Um, that a person, a person's behavior can be predicted with statistical probability of a high order based on his religion is totally untenable to the modern liberal mind. It's totally out of the question. One of the biggest firestorms of controversy that I, your humble rabbi, uh, set off I ignited a firestorm of controversy. Uh, it's not a year or two ago. It's not that long ago. Um, on the Glenn Beck show, uh, I was on with Glenn and uh, with a wonderful magician called uh, Penn Gillette. Penn is part of the Penn and Teller magic team, and uh, and and Penn Gillette is is a very very smart guy. He he's uh, he's a, he's an outspoken and vocal atheist. And Glenn thought it would be fun to have us both on together. And I don't think he knew how much fun it was going to be. But I certainly looked forward to it. And, um, and I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Penn and I, look, I, I like I like magic tricks. I just, I just enjoy it very much. Uh, I enjoy the, the level of skill and, uh, and, 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 and the ability to baffle and bewilder. And few people do it as well as, as Penn and Tellus. I was delighted to do that. Anyways, obviously, the, the conversation very quickly goes to religion. And, and Penn says, uh, look, you know, all religions are the same. It doesn't make any difference. They're all uh, primitive beliefs in irrational ideas. And uh, the world would be better without any of it. Okay, fine. And so um, at a certain point when this had been going on for a little bit, I, I said, can I ask you a question, Penn? Uh, here's my question, um, and it's a simple yes or no answer. Would the world be a better place or not if one billion Muslims became evangelical Christians tomorrow? Well, 
as I ask the question, I have to tell you that um, I, in my mind, I was trying to figure out what Penn would say because, you know, there's millions of people watching and it's going to be on the Internet. And uh, if at all possible, I'd like to avoid ending up on, on, the, on the losing side of this conversation. I certainly don't want to end up looking stupid or bad. And so I'm thinking to myself, you know, how could he answer it? And, and with a sinking heart, I realized, I mean, that it flashed through my head literally three or four, maybe even five ways that he could answer that that would not answer it, but would turn it into a sort of mockery of the question and, um, and move on to something else and sort of leave me, leaving me squirming in the dust. And so uh, in those few milliseconds, as these thoughts were flashing through my mind, I'm regretting now even having raised it because it's, it's a good, powerful question, but it's also a question that it is possible uh, to dismiss. You, you can't answer it seriously without being, you know, without saying the, the, the thing which you and I believe, but, uh, but I, I was sure he wouldn't do that. I was sure he would take a, a swing at me and essentially score entertainment points rather than honest points. Well, um, he put his head back and he sort of seemed to close his eyes for a, a moment and then Glenn exploded and said, oh, I can't believe that. You know, and Glenn was very funny about it. But meanwhile, um, Penn is thinking and I am now fascinated to see what he's going to say because if he was going to just... Um, uh, treat my question with mockery, he could have done that already. And eventually um, he opened his mouth and he said, I think I would have to say yes. And I, I said to him afterwards, I mean, the show sort of moved on. I should have said it on the air. Uh, but I said to him in private afterwards, I said, I have to tell you that um, given the circumstances, I think that what you just did was the most stunning example of intellectual honesty that I can ever remember seeing on television. Because with your public posture as an atheist, and with the enormous following you have, and with your awareness that what you were going to say in answer to that question was going to be all around the internet within minutes, um, that took some doing to answer it the way you did. And I meant that. It was really kind of remarkable. And that's exactly what happened. And so uh, there it is, the idea that religions shape the way people live. And religions can, to some extent, predict how people are going to behave. That bothers the left more than anything else. When I point out that um, uh, Orthodox Jewish families and serious, committed um, uh, Christian families have a much higher net worth evening out income and age and everything else than people who have no faith. It drives listeners crazy, but it's absolutely true. And why wouldn't it be true? Because net worth is a function of how much you save and how much you spend. Net worth is a function of your racing after consumer goods or racing after sound investments. That's what net worth is. And that decision is a character-based decision, is it not? Whether you spend or whether you invest, 
uh, whether you are seduced by consumer chrome or whether you are able to think for the future, these are character-based things. And religion shapes character for good and for bad, depending on the religion. So obviously it is true, and, and it shouldn't be a shock to anybody to know, that um, people who are Bible-believing Jews and Christians in the United States of America enjoy a far higher net worth, a far better economic life on average than people who are not. But this drives the left absolutely crazy because religion is meant to be not only irrelevant but even extinct. And uh, current events around the world prove how wrong liberal views on this are as they are on almost everything else. That, my friends, is as far as we're going in uh, today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Go to the tab marked Contact Us. Shoot me an email because uh, I love hearing from you. I really do. Much appreciated, and all I can do now is to hope we'll be together again on the podcast next week when we do uh, podcast number 16. And uh, until then, have a healthy and prosperous week. God bless.